Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 21. We'll be starting in verse 15. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for allowing us to come together here to study your word and uh, uh, to help us better understand uh, what you're telling us in the Bible and to be shining beacons to the rest of the world to show that Jesus is real and his message of being peacemakers and loving your neighbors is real. And thank you for Mark and his diligence in preparing these lessons. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, everyone. We have been uh, going through the travels of Paul and we have finally come to the brink of the last section of the book of Acts, which we will summarize as the trials of Paul. And we're going to spend most of our time this evening looking at the events in Jerusalem before Paul gets arrested or incarcerated or rescued, however you wish to view it. Uh, so he's he's made it down. He's trying to get to Jerusalem by the Feast of Pentecost. He is carrying, uh, not necessarily on his person, but his entourage is carrying a contribution of money and maybe food for the Judean Christians that has been gathered from the predominantly Gentile or non-Judean churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire that Paul has helped to establish and develop. And this is a a very uh, important thing. Luke doesn't mention it here in this account, but Paul mentions it in many of his letters that have been written leading up to this visit to Jerusalem. And he's really, really uh, obsessed with it. And it is kind of a groundbreaking thing. It'll be really the first time in history that foreign nations have voluntarily sent contributions to Israel. Of course, it's, it's, uh, it's being done as all part of the same spiritual kingdom, not as a foreign physical kingdom giving uh, tribute 
to another physical kingdom, but it, it does fulfill several prophecies in the Old Testament. And so Paul is eager to do that. He's made it as far as Caesarea, and he's been there in Caesarea several days where another prophecy was made by Agabus, who actually had predicted the famine that is now in full effect way back in Acts chapter 11. Agabus came down from Judea again and uh, predicted that Paul would be bound and handed over to the power of foreigners. And so this brings us up to uh, our reading. Let's read verses 15 and 16 first, please. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Great. Thank you very much, Leslie. So Luke is uh, apparently with Paul's party here because the pronoun we is in use. And some of the uh, Christians in Caesarea went along with them and brought them apparently to the home of this Manasson of Cyprus. When it says a disciple of long standing, some scholars believe that means that he goes back to the beginning, the day of Pentecost, when all nations were represented. They were all Judeans, but they were from every country in the Roman Empire and beyond gathered together on that first Pentecost that we had described way back in Acts 2. We don't know that for sure, but he goes back, uh, if not that far, almost that far, and he apparently was going to put up Paul and, and his uh, party somewhere in the environs of Jerusalem. All right, if there's uh, no the thoughts, let's get on into the meeting here and let's read uh, verses 17 through 20 please when we arrived at jerusalem the brothers received us warmly the next day paul and the rest of us went to see james and all the elders were present paul greeted them and reported in detail what god had done among the gentiles through his ministry when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. So, if we review what we have learned in Acts thus far, there were 12 apostles who were appointed to devote themselves to the Judean people. And... There had been Judas Iscariot, he was replaced, and there were 12, and then we've lost uh, James along the way, so there may only be 11 now. But then, in contrast to that, Paul is appointed to go everywhere else, to everybody else, and he has to do this, I mean, in, in just a few years, really, and he is doing this, as we pointed out, in, in fulfillment of the Song of Moses, a prophecy God uttered through Moses way back in Deuteronomy 31-32, shortly before the end of Moses' physical life, where 
it was predicted that in Israel's last days, God would provoke them to jealousy with people who were not a nation, people that did not know God. And Paul has quoted this several times. He he is using the other nations to provoke Israel to jealousy so that a remnant within them can be saved. And he talks about this in the letter to the Romans in, in great detail. But he recaps to uh, the presumably most of the apostles were there as well as all the elders of the church in Jerusalem. The original Greek word in verse 20 is myriads, thousands upon thousands of Judean believers uh, were there in Jerusalem. And even though that sounds like a large number, we, we saw how they multiplied dramatically from two or 3,000 to 5,000 to thousands more. So we were already up to 10, 20,000 when we kind of shifted with Luke to follow Paul traveling elsewhere. And they've continued to grow, apparently, and use this word myriads to describe the number of Judean believers. But even though that sounds like a large number, it is still just a remnant of the Judean population because most of them have rejected the idea that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. But they are very excited to hear about the success of the gospel amongst the other nations, and they gave glory to God for this. I think we've pointed out previously that it was known through many prophecies, several in the book of Isaiah, that in Israel's last days that all of the nations would be drawn into Israel. And even though there were some Judeans who didn't apparently think much about this, a lot of them did. The problem was they understood that the other nations would continue to be subservient to men who were born into the nation of Israel. And just as the temple segregated these groups with different courtyards and all the synagogues had separate seating for the foreigners and the women as opposed to the men of Judea, most of these Judean men assumed that they would still exercise supremacy in the new kingdom of the Messiah. And this is the tension that exists in all of Paul's travels as he goes to these synagogues because when he starts teaching of the equality of the foreigners who are not following the law of Moses to the Judeans who are following the law of Moses, this this causes resentment and hostility in many of these places. And we've seen that everywhere that he went. Particularly in Asia, he had uh, some vicious enemies. And in the area of Corinth and Thessalonica, he had uh, vicious enemies as well amongst the Judean men who resented any idea that in the promised Messianic kingdom that the Gentiles would be equal to the Judeans. 
So here we see the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, though, glorifying God for the success of the gospel amongst the Gentiles. And they knew that this was required to bring about the salvation of the remnant of Israel by all the prophecies uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. And so this might have been why they immediately brought up to Paul this idea that there were myriads of Judean believers. But then there's this little phrase here at the end of our reading, they are all zealous for the law. And so this is what we want to talk about tonight. It's incredibly important because so many of the religious groups in our country today are confused on this matter. Let's go ahead and read verses 21 and 22, please. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Now, if we recall looking at the 15th chapter of Acts, this was the what's called the Jerusalem Conference. And the this same leadership group of the Jerusalem church, they were addressing the problem that some of their number had gone up to Antioch in Syria, where there was a large mixed congregation of Judeans and Gentiles, and they started saying that these foreigners in the church needed to proselytize, they needed to circumcise all their males, and they need to start following all the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses and and the whole rest of the law of Moses. And so if you recall, there was a, a great meeting in which the entire church, thousands of people participated, were allowed to listen and offer counsel and so on. And the the church decided by consensus to send a letter back up to Antioch in Syria uh, asking that the Gentiles abstain from uh, blood and fornication. I think there was one other thing. It was but what we call the Noahical covenant, but not be troubled with circumcision or the law of Moses. But that decision only applied to the Gentiles. So by implication, what can we assume about the Judean Christians and the law of Moses? Anyone want to venture a guess? Here we find that these myriads of Judean believers are all zealots for the law of Moses. This term, the law, appears about 117 times in the New Testament, and all but 17 of those occasions, it's obviously referring to the law of Moses. If it's referring to anything else, then it's usually stated, like Paul will say, the law of sin and death, or the law of this, or the perfect law of liberty uh, in the book of James. But if it just says the law, the context tells us that it is referring to the law of Moses. So what 
apparently is not thought of at all uh, amongst uh, Protestant scholars today or church leaders or whatnot is the idea that during the these days, the days of the apostles, the generation after Christ ascended, we have Judean Christians who are continuing to follow the law of Moses in its entirety, the diet, circumcising their male children, offering things at the temple, just like their forebears have done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yet, Gentile believers are not expected to do uh, any of that or to keep the law of Moses. And here, reports have reached Jerusalem that Paul was teaching the Judeans who live amongst the nations to commit apostasy against Moses, to have them stop circumcising their children and not to follow the diet and other ancestral customs. And this is quite interesting. They're very concerned about this. And, and they say something, you know, has got to be done about it. What can we do? All of the believers will hear that you, Paul, have arrived. He was very famous uh, already. So they don't really ask him his opinion. They say, therefore, do as we tell you. And let's, uh, let's just start back at verse 23 and read down through verse 26, please. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day Paul took the man and purified himself along with him. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Great, thank you. So they have the suggestion for Paul that he take these four believing Judeans uh, who have apparently taken a Nazarite vow, which would have lasted at least a month and, and could have been much longer where they did not cut any of their hair, when they were ready to end the vow, they would go up and offer certain animal sacrifices prescribed in the Law of Moses. These are the expenses that are referred to here in verse 24 of the, for the animal sacrifices. And, and then they would have their head shaved and the hair would actually be burnt as an offering uh, before God. It was common for Judeans with these vows to have a sponsor and so Paul was to serve kind of as their sponsor uh, in this vow and all of the Judean people believers and non-believers would see that Paul was living as an observer of the law 
they then go and mention this letter that we talked about already from the Jerusalem conference back in Acts 15, which is separating out the obligations of the foreign believers as to the law of Moses from the Judean believers who are still obviously observing the law zealously. And uh, Paul begins to carry this out. The end of this vow, I guess, would take several days to, to be accomplished. But what's interesting here is we have absolutely no objection from Paul about this. And, of course, we know already from his life what a cowardly individual that he is. And so he's obviously intimidated by this large number of uh, Judean uh, believers, uh, the, the shepherds of the flock, so to speak. And so he, he is too afraid to challenge them when they tell him to prove to all of the locals that he, Paul, is a faithful follower of the law of Moses. And, and you laugh. I mean, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but when we look at commentators, they believe that Paul had been teaching all the Judeans abroad to stop following the law of Moses. And certainly in, in what we call the Restoration Movement, the Churches of Christ, the Christian churches, they have been teaching for it at least 100 years, if not longer, that the law of Moses ended at the cross. And no believer, Judean or Gentile, was following the law after the cross. Or if they were, they were, they were uh, sinning. Now, Don Preston, who many of you have, have heard on this program, he recalls when he began preaching in Shawnee, Oklahoma, a good number of years ago, there was a, a man who was a Southern Baptist pastor, and he was the son of a Southern Baptist pastor named Robert Shank. That was the son's name. I don't know the father's name. <laughs> um, he, uh, he was born in 1918 and passed away in 2006. After serving many years as a Southern Baptist uh, pastor, he he started writing books that disproved various aspects of Southern Baptist doctrine. And it was suggested by his peers that he would uh, feel more at home amongst the churches of Christ than in the Southern Baptist church. And so he actually made that switch. And he went around the country visiting various denominational pastors and presenting the plea of the Churches of Christ and the Restoration Movement to, uh, to drop uh, denominational distinctions and uh, reliance on the, the creeds of most Protestant churches and so on. And he also gave lectures at Churches of Christ around the country. And he came to Shawnee where Don was preaching, and Don remembers him stating at that time that one of the greatest contributions the Restoration Movement has made is the view that the law of Moses passed away at the cross and God was completely through with Israel at the cross. Don 
took note of it at the time, but he hadn't really studied it himself. He kind of, at that time, he thought everyone uh, believed that. Later, when he began studying eschatology, the view of the last days in the Bible, he remembered uh, this thing that uh, that Robert Shank had said years before, and Don came to realize that this was totally erroneous and totally wrong. And I don't know. I was going to ask some of some of our participants here, who come from different backgrounds, you know, what they have been taught growing up as far as these uh, these Judean believers. Are they following the law of Moses after the cross? Because we're we're finding here in Acts 21 that it's stated black and white that they were all zealously following the law of Moses. And yet, so many churches and commentators and so on, they view this as some kind of a, an anomaly, as something that can't be quite right. And this chapter, Acts 21, is a real problem for these teachers and all these uh, groups and denominations today who believe that. So I'll open it up if anyone can give me any insight as to this question. And, and does anyone remember being taught one way or the other? Were Judean Christians following the law of Moses after the day of Pentecost, after the cross? Or, or did it even register to you? I don't think it registered. It was kind of almost like you knew it intuitively, that, that obviously it must have ended. I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. Yeah, well, that's, again, I, this is a a lot of people haven't thought about it, and it's it's a real problem. Mark, it has certainly been the um, predominant teaching uh, that certainly that I was brought up on in in the Churches of Christ, uh, and that was that the law was fulfilled at the cross. And of course, this was a very, um, I mean, it was like a fundamental tenet of uh, typical amillennial Church of Christ belief. And even to this day, because I've had uh, recent discussions with uh, with gentlemen about the fulfillment of the law, uh, they uh, believe that um, it ended at you know in 30 A.D. that God was finished with Israel. And then in some of the actual debates that we've had, uh, we've had men take uh, positions there, that they changed in the midst of debate because they could not reconcile the beliefs that they thought were so um, commonly held and so um, um, assured of uh, when they found them tested in debate that they couldn't hold up. And so we got positions uh, such as, you know, on the one hand, it was done away at the cross. And I remember particularly with a a gentleman who came to um, basically refute my understanding of covenant eschatology and, you know, what I was teaching about. And he came to my house one afternoon and he says i'm going to prove to you that what you're saying is wrong and he started out with uh, a text that says the law was fulfilled at the cross and he started with colossians 2 and ephesians 2 the typical texts that are used as proof text and i says okay let's assume that your position is correct and i said are you aware that the law prophesied and that um, the law taught the return of christ and uh, he seemed a little bit d- dazed at that point, and I said, well, you can go back to Deuteronomy 
And uh, actually, you can start in Genesis, because when you talk about Genesis 3.15, that's the prophecy of Christ crushing the head of Satan. Well, that doesn't take place until the return of Christ. And um, so when I said, if that's the case, I said, then tell me where you would have to place the fulfillment of the return of Christ. And he just sat there, and his jaw hit the table, and he never uttered another word. (laughs) Uh, about it, but that's kind of what happens when we talk about this, and it's so uh, very important because, as you're developing in the Book of Acts, uh, Paul made it very clear that his doctrine was based upon all things that were taught in the Law and in the Prophets. He said, when the Jews tried to accuse him, you're talking about his trials here. When they tried to accuse him that he was teaching something contrary to the Law of Moses, he says they can't prove that. He says, but this I testify before them, that according to the way which they call the sect, he says, so I believe in the um, teaching of the, of the prophets. And he says, I believe that there will be a uh, resurrection, both of the just and of the unjust. And he said that was according to, according to the things that were written in the law and in the prophets. And so he actually quotes from Daniel and says, you can't prove that my gospel is different than what they taught. So uh, as you were mentioning eschatology, the fulfillment of those things that pertain to Israel are nothing but a reiteration of Old Testament prophecy, and to set it aside before all of it has come to pass is really to teach something contrary to what the New Testament teaches. Thank you, William. Uh, We need to go back and look at a little background here. I think we've mentioned this before, but just to refresh everyone's memory, most of the Protestant denominations in America in the 1800s had what we call the post-millennial view, which meant that they were looking forward to a future coming of Jesus Christ, the so-called second coming, but they believed that it would occur after the millennium, and they viewed that as a figurative period of time, not a literal 1,000 years. They viewed it as, a, as really the church age, so to speak. And, and many of them, including the Restoration Movement, believed that there would be a golden age in which the entire world would turn to Christ and that this would then trigger the second coming uh, and the end of the known universe. Um, this all fell apart beginning, well, it be, beginning with the dispensational movement on the frontier in the 1880s, it was really accelerated by the publication of the Schofield Reverence Bible and the, the defection of the uh, Southern Baptist churches to into dispensationalism and Christian Zionism as we know it today. Uh, the Restoration Movement knew there was something wrong with the post-millennial view and so they adopted this amillennial view, which William referred to, which is basically, well, we don't really understand the millennium, and so we're not going to talk about it. We're, we're going to stay away from all those books of prophecy, and uh, we're just going to read the New Testament, the parts of it we can understand. And that's, Now, that's a, that's a biased, simplistic generalization on my part. Uh, I have friends who are primitive Baptists, and they pretty much did the same thing. They, they're just as appalled by the dispensational movement as uh, many of the rest of us, but they stay away from end-time studies because they can't agree on it. So abandoning the post-millennial view 
I think, led to the moral collapse of our country, but it was flawed. And uh, what William is calling covenant eschatology, some people call it preterism. It's related in there. It's 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 what it's kind of a synthesis, really, of all of these views, and and it's a corrected form of postmillennialism pointing out some of these things just that William was just pointing out and that I'm hoping to point out here. People ignored these clear facts in the Bible, and it caused all of the views to be flawed before. And uh, interestingly, this Robert Shank, who abandoned the dispensationalism of the Southern Baptist Church, he could not stomach the amillennialism in the Churches of Christ for very long, and before he died, he became a classical premillennialist, uh, which doesn't excite many of us, but it's actually more consistent in a way than amillennialism, and certainly way more consistent than dispensationalism, because it does not ignore all of the Old Testament promises to Israel. But classical premillennialism teaches that all of these will be fulfilled in a spiritual way under the rule of Christ. And again, sadly, many of them believe it will be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. But they don't believe that the temple will be rebuilt and the red heifer and so on. So this is a real quick overview of different end times views. But it's, I think, important to note that all of them have been flawed and and real seekers have not been happy with any of the traditional end times views which have caused so much division and confusion in the Church of America. By going through these events here in Acts 21 and through the trials of Paul, I believe Don has pointed out to me the the way to correct all of these traditional views and to come up with a view that, that really is consistent from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation and really holds tremendous promise for changing the world, changing so many of the flaws uh, that are in, in the world today. And, and many of these uh, flaws and, and evil things are perpetuated by Bad end times use, uh, you know, in particular, we all would agree the, the dispensational premillennialism of the Christian Zionists. Okay, th- I, I got to stop there. <laughs> Anyone else want to chime in? I'd like to ask a question for both William and Mark. Uh, I think we're afield here. However, I'm going to ask you both a question. Do you both hold that uh, the Old Testament is God's literal words, word for word, and is reliable as God wrote it? If so, which Bible? Well, the the way that I would describe that is we believe that the original autograph, or I'll say I believe that the original autograph of the books was inspired by God and that no translation can be perfect, but that God has, through providence, preserved enough that we can you know, seek his will in the translations and manuscripts that we do have access to. Yeah, I, would, I would agree with that assessment as well. If I could ask a question? 
Sure, Travis. What about the Council of Nicene? I know the, you know, the first century church didn't even have a Bible printed, and I really question some choices at the Council of Nicene, like the Book of Esther. Oh, yeah. So, yes, now we're talking about the canonicity of Scripture and which books are inspired and which are not. And uh, we've had brief discussions on that before. And that would be way beyond the scope for discussion this evening. Again, I have to answer the same way that God is, has preserved through providence enough evidence for us to examine these things for ourselves and make our own decisions. But but I'm personally, I, I feel no allegiance or loyalty to the Council of Nicaea or any other such convocation that has occurred uh, since the apostles uh, finished their mission and passed on. Yeah, and it uh, is also, uh, it seems evident that, you know, Jesus and the apostles quoted from the Septuagint virgin, version of the Old Testament. And, of course, that's what they used to even preach Christ. So I feel pretty confident um, in using the scriptures uh, that they used, uh, and, and you can make very strong cases with eschatology and with um, you know biblical teachings in general from a use of the Old Testament. So I you know I'm with Mark on that. I'm certainly no canonical um, scholar and able to give such a defense there are references you know from for people who want to delve into that area of study i do believe that there is sufficient amount of evidence for any person who you know who wants to understand these things uh to get and uh, and ascertain you know the the truths by the proofs that they uh, that they present thank you all well, right uh, I don't know how much time we have left here. I was just going to say just a couple of things on what you were saying about the um, the importance of this topic. You know, eschatology has been one of the main reasons for the division in pretty much all uh, religions or denominations. I noticed some years ago, and I've been teaching covenant eschatology for, I guess, since 1979. I don't even want to try to count how long ago that's been and could be considered a partial preterist even before then, um, you know, since about 1976 or so. But at any rate, I adopted the full preterist view in, in 1979. But what I noticed was that if you really study the um, pretty much the Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Pentecostals, Mormons, they all have some aspect of eschatology that they're holding on to, which is tied to the coming of Christ. Um, same thing with, with, of course, you know, Christian Zionists, etc., but all of them have some aspect of it that is tied to some future element of the return of Christ. Once it's understood that all prophecy was connected to the destruction of Jerusalem, that is, in fulfillment, according to Luke 21, 20 through 22, and the statements of Christ where he said that generation in which he lived would not pass away, would by no means pass away until all those things were fulfilled, that places the event in our past and not in our future. And that pretty much eliminates all of this confusion about date setting, 
great tribulations coming, uh, Israel in the land, etc. All of those things just go by the wayside once that's done. It's the perpetuation of this uh, futurism because people fail to see and, and honor these imminent time statements which are found in the scriptures. And just back to the views of the Church of Christ, we will take the time statements on the kingdom, which, it, which state that it was at hand, and we will argue that at hand means imminent, that it meant that it was arriving soon, and that it did in fact come. And then we will read those same at hand statements, same shortly to come to pass, coming in a little while statements, speaking of the return of Christ, and then we will say they don't mean the same thing. And what's interesting is, is that the coming of the kingdom is the same as the coming of Christ, 2 Timothy 4, 1, and also Matthew 16, 27, and 28. I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, that's extremely helpful. I didn't know at the beginning William was on with us tonight, so I'm really glad that he could make it. Uh, I just, well, we need to pick this up. I want to look at these source verses next time that everyone reads to, to think that the law passed away at the cross. Uh, I just want to ask one more time. Tom started to mention uh, that no one really thought about it in, in the churches where he's been. Anybody else with a different background remember anybody saying anything about when the law of Moses ended? Okay, well, I, I'm just going to comment then on the silence as a way of closing. Excuse me. Are, yeah. Um, are you talking about the Babylonian Talmudic law, or are you talking about the Ten Commandments? No, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments. But I'm not talking... I'm talking about the churches where you were that wouldn't have even ever heard of the Talmudic corruption of Judaism. I'm just asking what the churches in America have been teaching uh, as far as when the law of Moses passed away. I don't when think they've ever taught that it passed away because the Ten Commandments are honored, and that's part of the law of Moses. That is what we take as the law of Moses brought down from the mountain. And then all of the other law is, uh, in my understanding, all of the other law is, uh, as Jesus called it, the uh, what the uh, the, uh, well, the practices of your practices of your uh, of your uh, elders or something like that. What's the right word? Somebody knows it. Well, the ceremonial law, in other words, the nearly every denomination in America teaches that the ceremonial law passed away. In other words, at some point. Christians, even if they were Judean originally, they quit circumcising their children. They quit following the dietary regulations uh, out of the law. And so, what we're what we're examining here is when did that take place? When did that change take place? When do most churches think that that change uh, took place? So, anyway, we'll just think about it for next time, and we, we want to uh, examine this in a little more detail because it's so important to, to understand the rest of the book of Acts and to really understand why all of these different groups, with all of their end times views, are all 
wrong <laughs> and all confused and and uh, so I'm hearing what I'm rules. hearing is the the law is number one the Ten Commandments number two the ceremonial um, practices of the elders such as uh, scrubbing things and doing all the hundreds of things they did number three uh, the Babylonian Talmudic practices that uh, were in pra- were in in use at Jesus' time by the Pharisees that had come down through the so-called Babylonian captivity. Is all of that the law? Or are you saying which no. is and which ain't? Well, that's not my view. Let, let me just jump in here real quick. Um, uh, when I read the New Testament, Jesus refers to, um, or at least the apostles refer to Genesis as the law. In 1 Corinthians 14, He will, in his teaching on women, he will say, as also says the law. And he's quoting from Genesis. Uh, another text he quotes from Isaiah. And uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, I think 20 and 21, when he says, "Men of other lips, with the men of other lips, will I speak to this people?" He says, "In the law it is written." Jesus quoted Psalms and called it the law in John chapter 10. Now I do understand there are the Ten Commandments, but there is a sense in which uh, they quote, uh, you know, they can se- they will segment the five books of Moses and call it the law, but there are also other texts that refer to the Psalms and the prophets as the law. And so when I understand the law, I'm talking about the entire Old Covenant because I see the prophets as nothing but, if you please, attorneys or lawyers for those things written in the Law of Moses. And and remember that Jesus spent a lot of his three years correcting misunderstandings about the law and setting the people straight on all the error that was being taught by these lawyers and so on. And certainly some of these perversions, you know, may well, have been criticized picked up. the, uh, uh, the uh, practices and traditions of the elders yes. pretty, pretty harshly, Mark. Yeah, and so some of those may have been picked up in Babylon or, or yeah, wherever. Yeah, I think but, he was addressing things in the Talmud. Um, yeah, that, yeah. You know, these traditions that they had picked up that set aside the commandments of the law. So... To, so what is the greatest back. of the laws Jesus has asked? What, what is his answer? Uh, I didn't well, hear that. I'm sorry. Jesus yeah. was asked somewhere, what is the greatest of the laws? Well, he, he uh, said, love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, he said, and he added love that your one, neighbor right? as yourself. And he says, on these two hang all the commandments. He also said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it which he did. That's correct, but he says not one jot or tittle would in any wise pass from it until all was fulfilled, till heaven and earth passed. And so Hmm. you couldn't take away the law until every jot and tittle of it was fulfilled and until heaven and earth passed. And and so we're going to look at all of those questions in more detail. But just to to, to kind of... Bring, yes, to bring it back to our context, remember, we have myriads of thousands of Judean believers who are zealously following the law. This would have been the law that Jesus taught them to follow. And, and the verse right after the verse that William quoted is also ignored by virtually everybody. And that one says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, he shall be called great 
in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was part of the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking to Judeans, and we'll, we'll look at that later. But the law that they're zealously following is not the Talmud or anything like that. It is all of these Hebrew scriptures, as William stated it, as they understood it, and as Jesus had set them straight. If not them personally, certainly the core leadership of this massive group in Jerusalem had been there when Jesus was teaching. And so this is, that's kind of how I want to leave it. This is what they were following. And we want to, we want to find out if they were correctly following it or if they were in error by following it and what ramifications that has to our, to ourselves today and to uh, how we read the New Testament scriptures. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to stop. Thanks for everybody's input. A lot Thanks of food everybody. for thought. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.